This is Toko Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Sverry Caldwell. Sverry coached the Stratton Junior Nordic team from 1980 until he retired after the 2019 season. There was a short period of time where he was a headmaster, uh, but that was pretty much when he coached at Stratton. Sverry has been honored as USSA Coach of the Year three times, was a 1988 Olympic team coach, was a Junior World Championship team coach three times, and was a U.S. ski team regional coach. The Stratton Junior Nordic program has been very successful qualifying at least one junior athlete for World Juniors in each of the last 25 years and also 15 Olympians. This year and traditionally regularly about one quarter of the U.S. Nordic ski team is made up of Stratton athletes. That said, Sverry is a legend not because of his results but because of his personality love of coaching and of those that he coaches and the profound positive effect that he has had on so many skiers, including me. So Sveri, thank you very much for being here. It's, it's a real treat for me. Oh, it's good to see you and happy to help out. Cool. Well, Sveri, you're part of the legendary Caldwell family. I'm sure everyone's dying to know what it was like to grow up as in the Caldwell family in Southern Vermont. Can you give me a little background on that and when you started skiing? Oh boy. Yeah, I, um, I grew up in Putney. Both my parents taught at Putney School and they helped coach skiing. And I grew up with one older brother, a younger brother and a younger sister, but four of us all within five years. And our parents skied, so we skied. And, you know, we would typically in the winter, we'd ski to school. Um, we'd, when we had recess, we'd all go out and ski around. Um, so we, we did a lot of skiing. I probably started when I was two, maybe one. I was born in March, so maybe, maybe I was walking early enough to be able to ski at age one, but probably not. Um, but we really did very little racing. Um, we, we skied a lot. We skied some Alpine. Um, it was really more about being outside and, um, enjoying the sport. In elementary school, I only recall doing two races every year. And one was the Putney Relays and the other would, was George Washington's birthday race, which was a big citizen race. When did you do that? Um, and those were both fun, but. Sorry, when did you do the Washington's Excuse me? What years did you do the Washington's birthday race? Oh, probably from when we were about eight till, you know, through high school or whatever. Uh, I'm just curious. I um, years. Yeah. Then, so in, in elementary school, we actually, my brothers and I were all part of a little Alpine team that raced on Saturdays, Southern Vermont League. Um, but we'd only do those two cross-country races. Then when we went to high school, my brothers and I, we all jumped. We all did alpine races and we all did cross-country skiing. So we were four vent skiers. Um, so typically we would practice alpine one day a week, practice jumping one day a week, practice cross-country two days a week, and compete two days a week. And uh, so we just did a little, little of everything. In college, I went to Dartmouth and I wasn't very good 
I mean, I jumped and I was alpine skier, but I wasn't a great racer. There was no way I was going to make the team there. So I was just cross country there in, um, at Dartmouth. But growing up, it was just kind of part of life. It wasn't, there weren't really any races we were aspiring to or anything. We'd do a couple of years just for fun. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions for you. First, I did the Washington's birthday race in a race called the Paul Revere Cup at Fort Devens. I, I had a similar uh -huh. job and I did those two races every single year. And outside of that, we just go ski touring together as a family. Either we'd go through these cornfields and kind of break our own trail, or we'd go to a, a place that there was kind of skied in tracks and we just go skiing as a family. But one thing that I was never able to do is ski to school. I, I wouldn't know how. There weren't any trails between me and the school. But Bill mentioned that the other day. Right. Too. How do you ski to school? <laughs> well, we live in the country. So did I know. <laughs> and okay, school was probably like a five mile drive, but a three mile ski and mostly downhill. So my father cut a little, you know, he had friends on the land or whatever, and he just cut a little trail through the woods. Um, and back then we'd get more snow than we do now. So we didn't do it every day, but most days we'd just get up and leave a little earlier with our little backpacks and our lunch, bag lunches and ski down to school. Cool. And so, I think most of the time we probably got picked up <laughs> to come home. So the key thing is the, he cut a trail though. Cause I mean, you know, I grew up in New England too, and there's some pretty thick forest and brush and swamps. And I could not, I, I never could have skied to school. I would have gotten tangled up. There wasn't, there was nowhere to get right. there, you know? We went through a bunch of apple orchards and then probably used some old logging roads and stuff like that. And, and that was before skating. So the trail, you know, it really only had to be three feet wide, probably. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But we did that quite often. We'd walk, walk on that trail in the fall and spring and, or bike to school or ski to school. That was just kind of that. I think my parents, you know, they tricked us into thinking this is a cool thing to do. So that was, we just did it and it was fun. And um, like, you know, as a parent, if you, if you show enthusiasm, the kid's going to pick up on it and think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Did your, did your family give you technique pointers or were you just out there shuffling around and it wasn't oriented towards that kind of a thing at all? It was just pretty much skiing together, like, like going for a walk together, but on skis. I don't remember getting technique pointers, um, but I remember people like, you know, Bob Gray lived in the area and he would ski and everyone knew he was a really good skier. And so you kind of watch him and then you try and emulate him. So more of that. And probably in high school, we got a couple technique pointers, but if a kid's left to their own devices, and they see some good skiers, they can, pretty, they can figure it out pretty well. For sure. I was asking because your dad was kind of the Uber coach, you know? And uh, <laughs> sometimes I'm just curious if he was able to just ski with you and, and you know, kind of like going for a walk or if he couldn't help himself, you know? Yeah. No, I don't. I never felt any pressure at all. I mean, it was just like, so... Yeah, I'd, 
I don't ever remember him saying, oh, you need to do this or do that. So I never had that either. We used to go for, seemed like, you know, a couple hours in one direction, just breaking trails of family, going through cornfields and dirt roads. And then we did a snack and then we go back yeah. a couple hours in the other direction. Nice. And we called it nice. Finland. I don't know why, but the area that we've just been <laughs> skiing around with the cornfield, we just called it Finland. We're going to Finland. Cool. Kind of neat. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So you graduated from college in 77 and started coaching and teaching at the Putney School in Putney, Vermont. Um, did you start alpine coaching? <laughs> you heard right. <laughs> so when I went to teach at Putney, typical of a prep school, they ask you to do as much as you're willing to do if you're a staff member. So I taught and I was a dorm head and I coached soccer. And then in the winter, they had some older guy who was the cross country coach, my dad. So he wasn't going to give that up. And so he said, why don't you coach alpine and jumping? So I went, okay. <laughs> so I did some alpine coaching and some jumping coaching. Did you ever consider pursuing an athletic career rather than coaching? No. Um, in college, I just did cross-country skiing, and I wasn't very fast. And that was, on top of that, I got pneumonia one winter, and I had a bad back that would seize up um, the next winter. And so there was, I loved skiing, but... I wasn't skiing that fast. And actually senior year, I helped with some clinics and kind of helped coach some of the newer skiers. Um, and that was really fun. And I really liked that. But right after I graduated, I, I did, I went to Putney and I didn't coach. Um, and then I did carpentry and stuff like that for a couple of years before I ended up going to Stratton as a cross country coach. So that's a cool question you have. Before you started coaching at Stratton, you had never coached cross-country skiing. Is that correct? Don't tell anyone. <laughs> yes. You were obviously a super successful coach right out of the gate. Obviously, you've been around a ski coach your whole life. and But it's, a, it's an interesting thing because you, you took it to it like a duck takes the water, obviously. You know, you really established yourself super fast and the program was amazing. Yeah, I was, I, I think, I think the reason I was hired was at that time, there really weren't very many full-time coaches and this is a full-time job. So it wasn't like they're probably the only full-time coaches were like college coaches. Um, so there really was, weren't, wouldn't have been a lot of people applying with, with much, um, you know, experience because a college coach wasn't going to back up. They had their college job. So it, there were probably very few people with experience. And I think they liked me in the interview. They knew that I had grown up in a skiing family, which was a big plus because my father had been a U.S. team coach. My brother had been to several Olympics by that time. And so, you know, dinner talk would quite often just be about different racing and different strategies and stuff like that as we got older. And so they probably just said, well, he knows a lot about skiing 
and he was on a Dartmouth ski team and he's a nice guy and uh, he has that family background. So let's give it a shot. <laughs> so I have a question. Um, there isn't much of a population base in Southern Vermont where, where right. traditionally the students for Stratton would come from. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and I'm also familiar with students coming from other parts of the country, especially New England, but other parts of the country coming to ski at Stratton. How, how is that kind of dynamic? When you started coaching at Stratton, was it, it was pretty much just Southern Vermonters? And then as, as the program grew and the reputation grew, it seems like you started getting athletes from outside of Southern Vermont and then outside of New England. Was that how it went? Um, yeah, it's, we've always had the vast majority of our kids have been local day students. So right. they live right around here. Right. Um, and you know, that's like the Ogdens and the Caldwells and the Cokes. And, you know, so you look at the kids, a lot of our kids who've had good results recently, they all live here. And so they're day students. Um, but to your point, yes, as we started getting better and better results, more people knew about us. And so more people became interested and the program grew in numbers and we got people from further away so yeah you're i mean that's kind of what you have to establish yourself and get known and then people say oh okay that's a good program and they're doing well and getting into great colleges and let's look at it i think this is a good time for me to ask you about the culture of southern vermont in skiing was this culture mostly from John Caldwell and then his his protégés like Bob Gray and yourself and you know others that carried on or is there something special about southern Vermont where if 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 John Caldwell had been born in another region of the United States that had snow would it have happened there you know what, what are we what are we looking at with southern Vermont because something special about southern Vermont and the Nordic ski culture yeah, um, I think probably a lot of credit has to go to my, my dad just because he built a very strong program. And that, whenever you have a strong group, even if some people who are nearby are going to try and, you know, they're going to benefit from that because they're going to see it and they're going to try and be as good as those guys or whatever, even if they're not on that specific team. So um, that definitely helped. But Southern Vermont is also just, it's a great place to train. I mean, we get pretty good snow in the winter and there are just all these nice hills and back roads and great, great for roller skiing, running, hiking, um, skiing. So it's a, it is a good, a good place. I mean, if he were if he'd been plunked down somewhere where, you know, it's too cold all year or to this or to that, it, it would have been a lot harder. We do have a beautiful area for training. For sure. You, I mean, there are some legendary families there and you've got, you know, Brattleboro, Putney, um, some, of the, some of the legendary places that we're talking about with legendary families 
and there seems to be a, a, a Stratton, of course, this pervasive ski culture there. I'm not sure we could recreate that, for example, in Utah. We, we have our own version of it, but it's nothing like that. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, I think, so the first kind of wave was we had Bobby Gray from Putney and then Mike Gallagher from Central Vermont. And that was kind of when my father was coaching the U.S. team and he would pull them all together. And with no budget, more often than not, they were training Putney. So that gets the next group, the Caldwell, Galanis, Dunkley, Cope kids who are all living here, gives them that opportunity to see, see them training and get excited about it. Um, and so it just kind of slowly grows. I always kind of, I say it jokingly, but it's true. When I started coaching at Stratton and the kids were out roller skiing, they'd be more apt to get run off the road than be waved at. And now, 40 years later, most people know, my God, there's some of the best skiers in the world out there. Uh, you know, they'll give a little toot instead of a big blare on the horn and things like that and, yeah. and wait to pass them and, and treat them with respect. But it takes time. And, yeah. you know, you need that consistency and, and those results. And then over time, you build that culture. As you mentioned before, the vast majority of your athletes come from Vermont or Southern Vermont. Now and then, like I said, um, there hasn't been enough of an influx from people outside that you've had any challenges in kind of maintaining the culture, that special Southern Vermont ski culture. That hasn't been a challenge when I've seen it all, has it? Oh, I mean, everyone's different and occasion, you know, you have, if you have 20 kids, they're going to have some people who are hundred percent bought into what you're trying to do. And some people who aren't quite as bought in. So, but I wouldn't say that's a, you know, Southern Vermont versus other, it's just kids. And so I haven't had that problem. Um, part of the benefit of growing older is that, <laughs> we'd had enough success in our program. So when people come to visit, I just say, well, this is how we do things. Right. And, um, and then I try to keep really good communication with the parents and the kids. So we're all on the same page. Um, and the very, very vast majority of the time it worked great. I guess where I'm coming from is if there's hard, there are hardly any people in Southern Vermont and, but Stratton has been very right. successful. You know, it kind of brings the question sometimes to me anyway, if Stratton were located, the school and the program were located just outside of Burlington, Vermont, or outside of Boston even, right? you'd have a massive population right. base to choose from, but at the same time, it might be more difficult to um, kind of have that culture that comes with the rural Southern Vermont atmosphere, you know? It might bring other challenges as compared to... Yeah. It might be an advantage being located where you're located as compared to next to Burlington or Boston, maybe, you know? No, I get what you're saying. And there, there gotta be pros and cons. I mean, the pros are 
it would be nice to have 10 times as many kids introduced to it. Right. Uh-oh. Internet isn't working. Um, it'd be nice to have 10 times as many kids introduced, but then you have the potential of 10 times as many people might trying to micromanage. Um, so it is kind of, I mean, the size we are here has worked well in that I've been a member of the West River Sports Association, which is in charge of the Coke League. And, and we really work together so that they're just logical progressions. And we just kind of say, when you start, you can just do one day a week and then slowly build up. But it's, the whole goal is to have it so that every year you're going to go a little bit further up the ladder. Um, and we all agree that this, that's a good philosophy. Um, and so it's pretty easy to preach it. Yeah. <laughs> So some years ago, before you had the elite team, uh, the T2 team that was created, you would kind of spit out athletes, they go to college, and you may or may not ever see them again. And you didn't necessarily have a development pipeline the way you do now. And it seems to me, looking at Scandinavian countries, Germany, that's something that the United States we've been sorely missing is the idea you have kids looking up to, let's say, junior skiers who are nationally and internationally successful, and they're looking up to senior skiers who are nationally and internationally successful, and there's a clear development pipeline where the successful senior might have the same coach that the junior's being coached by. They might have eaten the same food, lived down the street or in the same dorms, and there's a surefire confidence in the path from point A to point B to point C. And then the senior athletes are observed by the junior athletes warming up or doing their warm ups or practicing something or watching video or, you know, and, and that kind of reinforces the teachings that the junior and youth athletes are, are receiving. And of course you have the opportunity to mentor. And I've seen that in other countries very successfully. And it seemed like that was, the major missing piece of the puzzle for us to churn out not only fast senior athletes, of course, because that's the last piece of the senior development pipeline, but actually to, to, to give the junior athletes a confidence to be sucked up into that, that, that level. And you've, you created that. In my mind, you were the first program to create that. Can you please talk about that? Because I know this is part of your grand vision. Right. Um, there's no doubt that that really helps. And it was probably 10 or 12 years ago, U.S. Skiing Association at that point, USA, decided to try and go more of a club level and encourage clubs versus, say, taking the top athletes and trying to get them all to go to one place. They said, let's trust for lots of the development. And um, at the time, I was coaching SMS, which I continued to do, but I was sitting there saying, oh, it'd be great to have a senior club. Andy Newell would, had graduated from SMS and did so fast that he went right onto the US team. He was one of the best sprinters in the world. He was great about coming back and training with us. Um, and that was just awesome for everyone. So it was 
clear that if we had a whole team, it would be more good people for Andy to train with and more good people for all the juniors to train with. So kind of the way I coach is everyone knows that when we set up workouts, we're going to try and have as many times as we can where the slower skiers or younger skiers can follow the faster ones. And so we set up workouts where they get that exposure. And as the kids grow, they know when they come in, they're the youngster, they're following people. And by the time they graduate, people are following them. And it's just kind of, you go from follower to leader. And now with the senior program, you can, you know, they're even faster leaders. And so there's no question that if you work together, it's more fun and you're going to improve faster. It's just not that many people do it, which is kind of a head scratcher. So um, that's what we're all about is just setting up opportunities so that people can see that pipeline and they can, as you said, you can expect that, hey, if I do this and this and this, I might be one of the best in the world. And you can kind of see that path versus questioning what you're doing and hoping it works. You can see it working right in front of your eyes. And then, so then you have the confidence and there's a huge difference. And a lot of people train well, um, but if you have the confidence that you're doing things right, you're gonna be a step ahead of the person who's questioning if they're doing things right. I think it also, eliminates perhaps a phenomenon that I, th I think is growth stunning. That would be big fish, little pond. You know, looking yeah. back at, at, at the years, I was pretty much always the fastest skier in every program or every school or every club that I was in. And that's not great. I, I would, it would be much better for me to have had an elite team to put me in my place and to keep me hungry and focused on going faster instead of saying, yeah, we're doing intervals. I know I'm going to be half a minute up on the next person. So you know, it, it removes your sharpness and your hunger in a sense, you know? And so um, you've obviously got a lot of talented kids going through your program to have to, for them to be able to shoot for Simi or Sophie, that's a whole, or Jesse, of course, that's a whole, you know, okay. They definitely are not going to have that kind of big fish, small pond syndrome going on. No. Right. But what we do then is like, for instance, we'll do hill bounding. We go up Stratton hill striding, hill bounding, and everyone's going to do, let's say this is early summer, so we're going to be doing level three, and maybe they're going to do seven minutes on, three minutes off. Everyone does the same workout. But what I do is I have the weaker ones start up higher. And so as they go along, the faster ones come by them, and they can kind of try and follow them a little bit. And then on the three minute rest, the faster ones run down and the weaker, the weakest ones might just stand in place, you know, but you figure out how far to go down so that in every single interval, everyone's getting what they need, but the faster ones are going through the slower ones on every single one. So it's just right in your face. And if we're doing roller ski speeds, they can try and follow, or if they're doing intervals, they can hop in for a section or something like that. And so what we do, with the junior skiers is what we're much more apt to do is saying, we have this opportunity, instead of worrying about your intervals, take advantage of the fact that they're there and jump in. You're still gonna get a hard workout and that's more important than 
whether it's 10 minutes or three minutes, it does, it's a hard day and you're learning a lot. So um, we really try and maximize those learning opportunities of following someone really good. And then on our senior team, yeah, Jesse's the best skier, but she's not the best at everything. Right. So she, you know, they all have different strengths and weaknesses and they can all learn, you know, if you're not as good at that, at, at one particular thing, go follow so-and-so. They're really good at that. And, and when they are all realized that working together, they're not, you know, they don't look at it as like, I'm not going to show them how to do this. They're a competitor. No, we're a team. And really our goals are <clears throat> much higher than whether I beat you. We want to do well internationally. So we better work together. Yeah. And, and for junior skiers, the system itself encourages high focus and high motivation because, you know, it's almost like a mouse being dragged in front of a cat's nose. You can't help yourself. If you're a skier, you're going to get sucked in and, and you'll be, your, your focus will be heightened and you'll be super motivated. I mean, that, that just the situation yields superb focus and motivation. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's all, I mean, <laughs> they're, you ask any young skier, you know, what, what would your goal be? They all say, oh, I want to go to the Olympics, so I want to win the Olympics. But unless they kind of see a path there, that's something that's, that's like, yeah, I want you, Ian, can you give me a million dollars? You know, it's like, that's a want, but it's not reasonable. You know, you have to work for things. So you need to have that. You, it's, it's very helpful if you can see a pretty clear path there. And of course, that's no guarantee. You need to have good athleticism and have a good motor and really want it badly. Um, but it definitely helps get you fired up when you have all those good skiers around doing the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So here's another angle on kind of the same thing. Andy Newell and Ben Sachs, and I've done interviews with both of them already, they've spoken at length about the amazing team chemistry and atmosphere that you have encouraged over the years focusing on positivity and mutually beneficial support, something you alluded to a second ago. Despite participating in hard training and striving to improve, you and your athletes have always seemed to be having a fun time. Can you describe your coaching style and philosophy, please? <laughs> I'm glad they said that. I mean, that's what I, that's what I want the people doing and thinking. Um, it's... It was very helpful for me to kind of step back at some point early in my career and say, you know, what is my goal as a coach? And I decided my goal as a coach was to coach at least one, hopefully multiple athletes who would go on to win an Olympic or world championship medal. And with that as my goal, I'm realizing that's not going to happen when I'm coaching them. So you kind of put it, I'm the step in the big picture. And so what can I do to help them? I, they better love the sport because it's going to take a long time. They better progress in the sport. So I'm going to make sure that we have logical progressions. Um, they better work together and enjoy working together uh, because it's just going to make their that much easier to reach success. So 
for me, there wasn't, I never really felt a lot of pressure on a, on a race day, like, oh, my junior athletes have to do this. It's like, no, if they get beaten, they have to learn how to go faster. If, if they win, they have to kind of go, okay, what I do to make me feel good and learn, but you're always just trying to learn and learn and learn and learn. And so kind of my philosophy is more, I would say kind of just a bigger picture and that takes the picture off the short term and you can really kind of enjoy the whole experience and look at it as this huge thing. And the more you can learn, the better you're going to do, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And did I answer your question? Yeah. Um, okay. I think to kind of simplify or boil it down a little bit, focusing on short-term results would be too short-term and short-sighted for you. You prefer to do the long game because that's your ultimate goal. And, and that has resulted, has, has had all sorts of very positive kind of side effects. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, it, trust me on, on race day, of course, whoever, you know, I want quote my kids to do well. Um, but, but, you know, it's not life threatening. <laughs> If they have a bad race, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It means something didn't go well. And so when something doesn't go well, you the key is to figure out, you know, what didn't go well, how can we approach that so it'll go better next time? Um, but yes, you kind of summarized it. It's it it's when you put when you look at the bigger picture, it I think it makes it easier and more enjoyable. Yeah. So here's another example of you taking kind of the long game in, in prioritizing that. Here's something Andy Newell said about you. He said, there would be days where we'd be going out skiing as a group in high school and Sperry would just, would just like hand us the wax box and be like, okay guys, figure it out. I'm not telling you what to put in your skis today. You guys need to put the kick wax on and make this work on your own, end quote. Um, so Andy then con continues, he did that kind of stuff, making us into independent athletes so that by the time you graduated from Stratton Mountain School, you could more or less write your own training plans, wax your own skis, and be an independent functioning cross-country skier. So that's another example of what you're just talking about, I think. Short-term be way easier to wax them and, and, and have short-term better results or have a higher quality workout, but long-term that's obviously what you're looking for, right? The independence, yeah. learning for yourself. And, and I kind of, I think I've already mentioned this, but I view a coach as a teacher. And really the goal is to teach them enough about sport so that they take ownership of what they're doing. Right. Um, so, and if they're taking ownership of it, they're going to, it's, you know, they're going to really do it. They're not going to cut corners or whatever. And they, but they have to know that every day, I mean, like we have interval workout and I say, oh, we're going to try and do whatever. And if I have 10 kids, four of them are going to do that, whatever. And the other six, 
are going to alter it a little bit based on what they think they need or what they and I think they need. Like if they're a little tired, they'll do less. If they're have tons of energy and the next day is easy, they can do a little more. And it's just so everything's kind of a moving target, but they have to understand that I'm not just saying, oh, four by six is the workout today. It's a harder day. And what we're trying to do is improve this and this and this. So you take ownership and figure out how to improve those things within the scope of this workout. But it is, it's kind of teaching them to be able to figure all that stuff out. And as you said, short term would be easier just to say, here, put on extra blue. Right. I mean, toka blue. But um, <laughs> sorry, I think that um, the another, let's say, um, consequence of coaching in that way with the long term and keeping things fun and but at the same time working hard, teaching principles and letting people figure things out. You've got a whole lot of graduates who are really great coaches now. You know, they're, they, they haven't left skiing. They're working the industry. They're skiers for life or many of them are coaches, and that's really cool to see. It's clearly a result of contact with you and your methods. That was <laughs> before some of these people started getting world junior medals and world championship medals and Olympic medals. That was what I was probably most proud of. It was really, it's really cool to see that yeah. a lot of the alums from our program have gone into coaching and doing a great job. For sure. Okay, here's a question for you. You have seen Americans come from no chance in international racing to multiple athletes making the red group, to having a good chance to medal but not believing it, to then finally believing it and having multiple athletes making the podium regularly. Recently, for example, Andy, Simi, Keegan, Caitlin, Liz, Ida, Sophie, Julia, Sadie, and that's not even counting relays and, and not even counting, for example, Rosie Brennan. We are now in a very good place as a country, especially with our world, our junior world teams being one of the most dominant in the world the past two years. Can you please comment on how exciting this is now and for the future, especially coming from the perspective that we had from back in the day? It's amazing. I keep telling the young kids, I say, you have no idea what it used to be like. We would be excited if anyone was in the top 30. So I just keep pinching myself. And um, it's so exciting as, you know, someone involved in that, in our sport to have now be getting those great results. And I mean, the guys, junior world team have medaled the last three years and gold the last two. It's like, what <laughs> you know this is amazing and it, and it's so cool and um it just has to fire people up i remember i was in college in 1976 when bill coke won his silver medal in the olympics and i was just like on cloud nine for a week i'm just walking along. i mean i was going up and grabbing people I didn't even know and saying, you know what, one of my friends just won an Olympic medal. And um, you get that sort of swell going and people start to, you know, it's the same thing. They start to believe and they kind of go, okay, we're doing it right. And in the past, I think we felt like 
we would try something and we didn't get immediate results and we just say that didn't work and so we try something else and we were most programs were lacking consistency um I, i'm not saying effort because i think people were really trying hard but without without having the map roadmap for success it made it really hard and now we have a lot of different programs doing a great job and and most of them are very open to talking to you know other programs which is great and that's the nice thing about our sport i guess also reflecting let's say 30 years ago um there was so such an insulation between the world cup and the united states ski public there was basically no videos no tv coverage no technique you know where you could emulate people and so on and now of course everyone can watch everything live or uh streaming or on demand and so the i think maybe coming from a pure nordic country is less advantageous now compared to the disadvantage of being not from nordic country because it's accessible for you know everyone at least in terms of watching it and the excitement and and emulating the technique and all that i think it's equalized things a bit huh Oh, for sure. I mean, it used to be just occasional stories. And then we'd wait around at the end of the season and hope to get VHS tapes that, you know, we could plug in and watch over and over again from world championships. And now, you know, with an a inexpensive subscription, you can watch everything live or all the World Cups live. And uh, it makes a huge difference because you kind of figure as you said, back 30 years or even further, it <laughs> even further, like back 60 years, we'd be 10 minutes out in a 10K, you know? So even if that skier came back and, and raced here, they might not be showing us the latest and greatest speed and technique. And meanwhile, Norway, you know, they just walk out the door, they see them all the time. So that has definitely helped like our nation, just the, the internet and the accessibility to watching great racing and hearing reports right away and stuff like that. I remember watching on TV, the coverage of the 85 World Championships from Seyfeld. I remember, and they had reasonable coverage because of Bill Koch's success and the expectation that perhaps Dan Simino or Adun or Jim Galanis or someone was gonna do pretty well. So they, they had planned some coverage and I remember the entire thing was something like six minutes. And I remember the song <laughs> that they played, it was Foreigner, that song Urgent by Foreigner. They played that uh -huh. song during the, um, during the, uh, the, the coverage. I right. mean, I remember every second of it where, you know, Vosberg <laughs> and uh, Harkonnen won the race. And I remember every second of it, and I watched it a hundred times. And it was horrible, honestly. I mean, you know, uh -huh. it was like three minutes of actual skiing with, you know, compare that to today, it's impossible for, for kids today to realize how starved we were for any kind of images or news even of what was going on yeah. in the World Cup. Impossible. Yeah. Right. No, and if it's like, I would know because my brother had been over there, so he would tell us some about it. But short of that, there would I wouldn't have known what's going on. So Right. And yeah. and now we can watch the world junior relay live or on the demand, even the world juniors. I mean, it's right. amazing the opportunities that we have, but I do think that's helped us as a country 
elevate because there are so many more streams of information and being able to emulate and so on. It's been really fun. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you about strength training. It seems to me that strength training is one of the aspects of Nordic ski training that's, that's changed the most over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, tremendous changes in strength training. On top of that, I would say there's a young crop of skiers coming through now. One of them is one of your skiers, Ben Ogden, who are incredibly strong. It seems like maybe one of the biggest differences between some of the young, very successful skiers coming through now like Gus and Luke and, and Ben and Johnny on the men's side and there's a bunch of them on the women's side is they're so much stronger than the juniors were 10 years ago. And they're even really strong compared to our best seniors. I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts on why they're so extremely strong. What, what's going on? Well, this, the quick answer is they're training for it. <laughs> but I think this, a lot of it is the evolution of the sport. We'll go back even further, like 50 or 60 years ago, all the ski trails were just skied in. So, you know, your poles would break through and sink down in the, in the powder and stuff like that. Um, and the sport was much more just kind of endurance based. And then as, as the sport has grown and they have better grooming and faster skis and stronger poles and all of that. We just started re realizing that double pole is a really, you know, very fast way to go when you're classic skiing, if it's at all flat. Um, even when I started 40 years ago coaching, I remember having the team do some little single pole up a very gradual hill. I mean, it was very gradual. It was almost flat and some of them couldn't do it. And, and then when I was finishing coaching a couple of years ago, we would do hills and stuff, you know, double pull for two or three hours and we just changed and started doing it more. So they're, they are spending more time in the weight room, but also doing a lot more specific strength too. It's just, you need to be strong now. And so we're trained to be strong. And I don't know where that, line is going to be because you and I see it and every time we see something new we go oh my god it can't get any better than this but it does so <laughs> I don't know if that just gets stronger and stronger and stronger or if it's like I mean I, I for sure had some kids who put on muscle really fast and I would have them do a lot less in the waiting room because to me everyone you know you have to figure out the balance for yourself you don't want to be a you know, bodybuilder type trying to ski. But those guys, I'm pretty sure they all go and, and work in the weight room and they all do a lot of specific strength. And so they train for that strength and, and it's obviously paying dividends. There was a time trial this last weekend out here at Soldier Hollow. And there were some of the country's best young athletes there, including Gus Shoemaker and Kevin Bolger and on the guy's side, for example, and uh, Luke Yeager, Johnny Hagenbuch, um, Sidney Palmer-Ledger, you know, real, really fast athletes. And, you know, Hermo Till, that's the famous huge, huge hill out here. Yeah. Gus yeah. V2'd. He V2'd almost the entire thing. Uh -huh. a, and he wasn't bogging down. He was flying. And his technique right. was so compact that, that 
his application of power, it was right there when he needed it, and there was no extra range of motion. You know, it was just chuck, 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 just, 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 he didn't bog down one bit and just, just floated up the hill with this incredible power and easy application of power. It's amazing how this young generation of skiers actually uses their strength to ski so fast and so effortlessly. It's amazing. Yeah, no, that's great. And as you pointed out, they're doing stuff now that 10 years ago we would have gone, you, you gotta be kidding. We'd be impressed if they weren't wimp skating up the hill, you know? If they could be one up around, that would be good. And now they'd be two again. Here's something that's gonna uh, give you a, you call it wimp skating, the Germans call it Azerbaijani. Because, <laughs> because years ago there was an Azerbaijani athlete at a race who was skiing that way, oh, yeah. that single skate. So they, all, all over Germany, they all call it Azerbaijani, the technique, because it's some poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. It's lucky I wasn't over there. They call it the Sperry technique. <laughs> exactly. Okay, I have um, a couple of anecdotes for you that, regarding me and us. I'm not sure what you remember, but when I was a U16 at the time, we called it J2 from Massachusetts. You used to actually single me out and kind of tease me, but and you were doing it to to help me. But you called me Mr. Knee Drive. Do you remember that? I I remember you having a wicked knee drive, and and I remember talking to you. I don't remember specifically giving you that name, but I'll believe you. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was happening, of course, is I was skiing with my knees too much as compared to my hips. I needed to stay higher and initially with uh -huh. my hips, but. But you saying that now and then you, you tell me that it it, um, it motivated me to improve my my classic my technique and and it helped me a lot and I always looked at you kind of going out of your way to greet me because I was just some average kid from Massachusetts I that was always symbolic to me of you as a coach you've obviously you've got your team and your responsibilities you know people demand a lot from from Stratton athletes demand a lot from coaching they expect a lot I should say um, but you always kind of were friendly to me and kind of went out of your way and greeted to me. And like I said, I was nothing special at all, just some kid from Massachusetts. And, and it kind of made me feel like I was part of the ski scene, even though I wasn't at the time, you know, and it made me feel real good. And um, I wanted to thank you for that and, and recognize that you didn't have to do that. And I wasn't, you know, I had nothing to do with your job or anything. And, I really appreciated that. And it, it meant a lot to me, even though, um, you know, it wasn't a ton of time on your part, but it meant a lot to me. Oh, well, great. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I don't, I just kind of, it helps having that big term, you know, that, the long term big picture approach, because if there's anyone out there and they don't have to be in my program, if there's someone who I see is eager and working hard and there's a little something I could, you know, mention to them that might help them, then I'll do it because if they get better, it's going to force the kids I'm coaching to get better. And I mean, that's the way I look at it. And it's a, we're all in this together trying to be better, bring up us skiing much more than me versus you. So yeah, exactly. And you've lived that over the years, absolutely. I think that's one reason why you're so loved and appreciated, and I think why you've inspired so many people. Hmm. So there's another anecdote I wanted to mention, and, and it was just a couple of years later. I improved a lot, and um, at the time I was a, 
on the US ski team, name in the US ski team. I was a top junior in the country. And I was at an REG camp, what, what we would now call an REG camp. It was the only one of those camps I'd ever, I ever went to when it was at Stratton. And I was all decked out in US ski team clothing. And, um, and I noticed, and you noticed, kids that were in a group nearby kind of all looking at me and ooing and aahing and whatnot. And you kind of got their attention and said, hey, that, and you were pointing at me and you said, that is the result of, is not the result of talent, but that is the result of hard work. And I don't know if you remember that or not, but I never forgot it. I probably someone with a different background might have been insulted. <laughs> I don't know, but I was so <laughs> pleased by the fact that you know that you noticed that and knew that, and you pointed it out to others because I had been told so often that year, for example, I was a 17 year old, I was 10th in senior nationals, you know, really good result. And I was told by so many people, talent, 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 you're so talented. And no one ever bothered to compliment me on all the work. You know, I, my desk over my, in my room was covered with index cards with technique tips and motivational this and that. And I was a late bloomer. So I worked my tail off for every second and all of a sudden I grew. And then all of a sudden everything fell into place, you know, but I, I, I eat, slept and dreamed skiing and, and I worked hard and I didn't have very many resources back then either, you know, no coaching really for a long time. And, and it really meant a lot to me that you, that you not only noticed that my progress was a result of hard work, but that you used that opportunity to teach other kids about that's where you get from point A to point B. And I really, it meant a lot to me. And here it is 30 years later, I'm still talking about it because it meant a lot to me. So <laughs> that was really cool. Do you remember that at all? I, I don't remember saying that. I remember you as a young athlete who's just loved the sport and worked really hard and was trying to learn as much as you could. And for me, that's, you know, anyone with that attitude is going to probably do pretty damn well. And they're up high in my list. And so it probably went back to, you know, it's, this is another teaching moment <laughs> to the kids, I was talking to, you know, don't just kind of say I either have it or I don't go exactly. out there and get it, um, exactly. which is clearly what you did, which was really cool. So congratulate. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, with, with Pearl, she's been accused of having a lot of talent and you no, know, you better do well, or maybe like Will Coke with his dad, you know, Right. That's so frustrating because, yeah, some kids are quite talented, but oftentimes they're the ones that work the hardest, too. Yeah, I think that some people who just maybe are a little unsure of themselves, it's kind of like a little bullying type thing. You know, it's just they're, they're probably trying to get in pearls or wills head a little bit, you know, just saying, well, you know, you have this and this and this. And um, I don't know if you saw the little interview with Will after he got a medal at the Youth Olympic Games, but someone asked him about, oh, is it hard with your father being such a good skier? And it was awesome because he said, no, I look at it as a great resource. You know, I can, we can talk about skiing and boom, boom, boom. And so, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know <laughs> Will was our fastest skier the last couple of years. 
he also trained more and harder and better than anyone else. So this, it wasn't like is, this is just handed to him. He's out there working his tail off and always asking me questions about what do you think about this? And, you know, different theories and why do we do this? And then why do we do that? So he's studying the sport and that's what you need to do to be really successful. And for someone just to say, oh, your dad was good. So you're good. It's kind of a, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> oh, thank you. That, that's cool. It was neat. Bill told me about that conversation that Will had with the media the other day, which, which was really neat to hear coming from his mouth. Yeah, I was, and he was so happy about it because he, as any parent knows, you know, you're trying to figure out, you want to encourage the kid, but you want to encourage them in, in the correct way. And the correct way is really, it's going to be different for every single kid. And, and, but you don't want to be, I don't think any of us wants to be the pushy parent because we realize if they're doing it for us, it's going to probably get stale pretty quickly. But finding that right balance can be tricky. And yeah, Bill talked to, he talked to me about it on a hike one day and he was just so pleased that with that, that was a genuine answer from Will that it was just, no, this is great. It's a resource. He's not, you know, it's not, not the pressure thing, but more of the, opportunity thing which is really cool super well i have a question that segues this is a good segue to this question um what is a common mistake that parents of young skiers might make um probably the easiest trap to fall into would be looking a little too much at the results um and and then that can get tricky because especially with the young kids you know that i always used to call it a curse if you ski too fast when you were what would now be a u12 um or u14 and it was probably probably because you grew really fast and you're bigger and stronger and then you associated fun skiing with winning so I think it's really important to, you know, look at the bigger picture and enjoy the process and um, versus getting too carried away with results at a young age. I guess that would be the biggest thing. Cool. I'm of the opinion that if you can, well, I, I don't actually even see a disadvantage. I was a late bloomer physically and emotionally, right? <laughs> but physically I was a late bloomer. And, and to me, that's, that was great because I had to figure out, number one, how to deal with failure, you know, not, not doing that well. But more importantly, I had to figure out how to get faster. And so I was working on the littlest things diligently to try to figure out how to get a second here, a second there. And then I grew and then it came easy. If it had gone the other direction, it would have right. been much more difficult to continue to progress and to figure oh, out how to find oh, second. For sure. So I, I'm, I, was, For sure. I was super happy about being a late bloomer, which, which, under, which uh, supports what you're saying. You know, if you focus on results as an early bloomer, it stunts your growth tremendously. And if you focus on results as a late bloomer, you're probably going to quit before you grow. So, because there's no fun. Right. So, um, I agree. Everything you said is critical. But I, at the same time, I also think it's, it's actually positive to have poor results as a kid 
because then you figure out if you really like it or not. And if you do like it, then you figure out how to get faster and then you grow. Yeah. yeah. So cool. No, I mean, it's <laughs> one when Sophie was in, I think sixth grade, doesn't really matter, but it was fifth or sixth or seventh grade. Um, we had the Coke League championships and she's a great skier and she got second. And I remember talking to her afterwards. I said, this might seem strange to you, but I'm actually, uh, you skied awesome. It was great. And I said, I'm, it might seem strange, but I'm actually glad you didn't win. And she kind of looked at me and I said, I don't want you thinking you have to win. I want you going out there and, you know, skiing as fast as you can and you ski great. And you shouldn't feel like you have to win. You should just go out there and ski as fast as you can. Um, so, and I think she got it. <laughs> but now it's like, for her, she skis the best when she's just happy and her head's in the right place. And um, it's not thinking, oh, I have to do this, I have to do this. It's more like, let them rip, you know, let's go. So, yeah, cool. I We've all seen that it, was yeah. one of my my little coaching moments of my own kid that I was most proud of, <laughs> just kind of letting her know that that the results weren't weren't that important. Yeah, we've all seen examples of this, but for example, in Bill Coke League, my last two years, I was beaten by over five minutes by uh, a Southern Vermonter prodigy who was extremely early developer and. By the time right. I hit college, I could put a couple minutes on him in a 10K. And this, this guy was 100% yeah. Olympic gold medalist in everyone's mind. Because he was such a – and he was a, he's a great uh -huh. athlete and a good talent. But just, um, you know, that's what happens when you develop early. I, I, it was a curse for him and a blessing for me. Just the way it shook out. Yeah. He was an early developer yeah. and I was a late bloomer. Right, right. Sorry. Yeah, you know – Let me ask you um, something that you know now that you really wish you had known when you're 18. I obviously coach a lot of 18 year olds. So I'm really, this is a, I'm sure an exciting, interesting question. <laughs> You'd warned me about this question and I couldn't, I couldn't really come up with an answer because I mean, I know I've learned a lot it, about the sport and stuff between 18 and now. Um, but to me, the whole, the, whole, the whole process has just been, you know, it's all a learning process and it's fun. And, and if you think, I don't know what I would have been, you know, oh, I, I don't say, oh, if only I'd known this. It was like, for, for me at that age, if I really wanted to be, if I wanted to be a better skier, I would have had to dedicate more of myself and looked at myself as being not someone who skied, but being a skier, if that makes any sense. I'd you know, often ask my junior that I'm coaching, I'd say, use three words to describe yourself. And if one of the words was skier, I'd go, okay, they're going to start making decisions based on being a skier. Um, personally, I never did that. And 
but I don't really have any regrets. I just chose a slightly different path. <laughs> um, so I, I can't give you an answer. I didn't really think of anything. Sorry. Well, that's, that's still quite interesting what you brought up. So what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? A lot of people know you. I've known you for a long, long time. But uh, I'm, I'm sure you can say something that would make me go, really? <laughs> well, the people who know me would be most surprised that I haven't worn a watch since March. And I've basically become a vegetarian since March. Um, because I'm one of these anal, you have to be on time type people. And now it's just no watch. And part of it is the COVID and being retired, a large part. Um, but it's just kind of this me trying to have a new mindset of just like slow down, relax, enjoy things. Um, and then the vegetarian thing, I one of my hobbies is, is gardening. And we have such a good garden that it just seemed silly to you know, I said, well, you have so many good vegetables. I'll, I'll just try that and see how that goes. Um, if I go out and some serving meat, I'll eat meat. I still like it, but I've just haven't bought any since March and it's just fine. Cool. Um, so that's like, those are kind of the surprise things. One thing I'm doing in my retirement, it's kind of funny because when I spent so many years coaching and there you're working with the kids and trying to help them learn about things and trying to have you know discuss decisions whether it's sports or academics or personal or whatever and just trying to help them learn and you rarely when you're working with kids get this aha moment you know it's just kind of over time they're gonna hopefully take in some of your suggestions and play around with them and tweak them a little and come out a little stronger because it um but now that I'm retired, I, every day I try and do something that I can look and say, ooh, that looks better. So my biggest project right now is rebuilding stone walls around my property. And I probably have close to half a mile of stone walls and you have to tear them down and rebuild them. And um, that's been really fun, you know, and it's, it's slow process. I might go two feet an hour um so it's going to take a while to do the whole half mile but i'm i've made some good progress and that's been a lot of fun so i have a question about that then but first i should say people from who aren't from northern new england they don't know what you're talking about so uh there are stone <laughs> walls all over the place in new england and the, my question to you is who built the original stone walls do you even know well i don't know the names of them but it was Vermont early on was mainly sheep farming um, and and a lot of kind of agriculture and sheep farms and stuff like that and when they were clearing the land they would just move the rocks out of the fields and basically stockpile them. Some of my stone walls were built as stone walls. Some of them it's just kind of like a it starts about six feet wide under the ground. And then at ground level, it's probably three and a half feet wide, and it, but it's just kind of a mound. So I'm digging down and trying to set it 
and then come up straight. So now it, it's a nice looking stone wall. But, but my, it was originally the farmer cleared yeah. the land and moved the rocks out of the field. My point is, there's stone walls all over the place in New England. I grew up in a property with stone walls all around it. I never, more than maybe once or twice in my entire life, saw anyone actually building a stone wall or constructing a stone wall. They've been there for a long darn time. And no one knows necessarily right. who actually built the stone wall, but it's been there. It's kind of part of their property. And it's a phenomenon that's unique, I think, to New England and perhaps parts of Great Britain. Yeah, I mean, that. to your point, you go out in a national forest and you see some stone walls. And every time I see that, I just kind of chuckle. I say, yep, okay, there used to be some fields up here. Um, and now it's just all woods or whatever. So I, I enjoy seeing them because then I'm looking and saying, okay, what do I think this was? Was this clearing for a little road through here? Uh, you know, an ox cart path or whatever, or was it for field and, and all of that? And, and then you start thinking, I mean, some of these rocks, they're, I need Simi to help me even budge them um, and, and crowbars and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and I'm kind of going, how the heck did they get these from the field over here? You know, they, they must have had to hook up their oxen, put some chains around the rocks, drag them over. And, you know, they might move two rocks in a day. And there's so many friggin' rocks here. It's like uh, how much work they all had to do to make the land so they could work the land was incredible. That's a fascinating thing to me. I mean, out west, the closest thing we have to that are, are perhaps the old wagon wheel marks from, you know, Oregon Trail or right. some other old trail that you can see kind of went through. And so you have the remnants of, of, of that. But and maybe, you know, ruins from, from uh, indigenous people. But in New England, you have, have these stone walls and other, that's, that's, they're really like artifacts and, and um, signs of uh, prior civilization, you know? <laughs> it's something that's yeah. kind of foreign to us as, as, as Americans. Yeah, and then, I mean, the same deal if you go up in, we don't really have mountains in Vermont, I call them hills. Um, but still, up higher in the hills and stuff, you see remnants of old trails that were used for, you know, pulling people up or whatever. And, and that's because before, you know, they got penicillin and stuff like that, you, people wanted to be up in the hills, up a little higher where there's cleaner air and you don't have so many neighbors and stuff like that. So they would be building, you know, places that no one builds now. Um, but it's kind of cool just to look around and see that and then kind of look, get, learn enough history so that you kind of understand it. And, and then when you're out there, you can kind of go, oh my gosh, look at that. You know, it, it is cool. I see that in the Alps. These settlements that are way the heck up on a cliff somewhere and you wonder how the heck they go to school and then they have a little a little, um, you know, ski lift kind of thing going down to civilization. The kids take to school every day. And, but what are they doing up there? Now, I think that's how it started also. It's because of um, sicknesses and trying to isolate yourself and, I don't know, mountain living. Yeah. Okay, let me, let's get back to, yeah. uh, let me ask you a question. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? 
Yes, that's an easy one. It's my favorite quote. You ready? Yes. You're gonna write it down? Probably. It's all practice. Oh, you ready? I'm ready. It's yeah. all practice until the Olympics. Say that again. It's all practice until the Olympics. And what do you mean by that? It's just, it's, you have to go out there and learn as much as you can and, you know, do good, good workouts, good races, bad races, bad workouts. It's all just practice. You're just trying to figure things out. Um, and if you can go into a sport, just figuring out as much as you can and then, you know, taking the good stuff and learning from the bad stuff and just keep on learning, you're going to keep on improving and, and getting better. And, and it helps once again, take that pressure off of, you know, does it really matter whether you were fifth or 12th at the Bill Coakley championships when you were eight years old? Probably not. What matters is that you were out there and you had a good time and you want to do it again. I was talking with Erica Flowers the other day and she mentioned, she said kind of a bit of a renaissance in terms of her skiing career. You know, she's retired from full-time racing and then it's gotten a little bit faster perhaps. And one of the things she talked about was related to what your mantra was. And that is she, she would do a race and before the race, maybe be a little nervous or something. And then think to herself in 10 years, I won't even remember this day, much less if I was first or 10th or whatever. So I'm going to take some risks and I'm going to enjoy myself. And I think that's, you know, it, it takes the pressure off when you say it's all practice until you get to the Olympics. You know, I, it takes the pressure off. You can learn lessons. You can progress. You don't get too upset with yourself. But to me, not to, not to pop your bubble, but it brings the question of what do you do when you get to the Olympics? How do you, how do you avoid self-destructing when you get to that point and say, okay, it's there no longer practice now. <laughs> well, so few people are going to get there. You don't have to worry about it. No. Um, then you just try and put it all together. I mean, obviously you, you're trying to do as well as you can in every race and you're trying to as well as you can all the way through, but it's just, to me, that's more, it just puts everything in perspective. We're just trying to learn. And, um, but if you don't, if you can't, if you haven't learned enough and you don't do well at the Olympics, that's going to hurt a little more than the other races because that is your biggest race. I mean, it's yeah. less, it's more of the all practice that, that I grab onto and I figured, okay, Olympics only comes four years. So that's I, a good one. I get it. Cool. I like um, that. And Erica, but Erica's, you know, you mentioned her, she's a, a great example of someone who she just trained so hard and did everything she thought she could possibly do when she was full-time skier. And I think when she could step back and have it, you know, like now I'm working and I'm doing it more for fun, it takes some of that kind of the pressure off and you, you can ski faster the tension it's probably more tension because if if you're sitting there and you're trying so hard you get tense tension tires you out and and it's tricky because it wanting to do well and trying to do really well 
is it's tricky. Your head has to be in the right place to do that. Like for me, I had to be totally relaxed. For Sophie, she has to be happy. For someone else, they might need to be mad, you know, but everyone's different. And, but if you're worried about things or unsure or tense, it's probably going to hurt. I think in her case, she was grateful just to be there, you know, more recently. She's, because she's, you know, in the office right. all the time and working all the time. And, and so she's just grateful to be there. So she's not worried about the little things. And in the big picture, she's super happy to be there. So um, I think that's really helped her mindset. But, and that's, that's in yeah, line with the no. mantra that you gave. So that's why I brought it up. Thank you. Okay. So, Sveri, is there anything else you'd like to say or talk about? Give you the opportunity because it's been enjoyable. <laughs> it's always fun talking talking old ski stories with friends. So that's good. Um, no, I think that was, that's fine. You touched on a bunch of subjects. So it was fun. Cool. Me too. Well, thank you so much for everything you've done for the ski community over the years. You provided an example of how to be for me personally over the years, for which I'm grateful. And I wish you well for the future. And I hope to see you around. I don't know when that'll be, but I'll look forward to it next time. Great. Well, I'll look forward to seeing you too. Good luck with everything. Thanks.